Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of P&L. Um, we'll get to this week's guest very shortly. Um, we're talking relationships, which I think is, uh, in the market sense, of course, not um, physical or emotional. Um, before we get there, the week that was, um, well, how many spoofing cases do you want, quite frankly? Um, the CFTC seemed to have gone bananas. Um, so last week, two traders were... Two former Deutsche traders were found guilty of spoofing in um, precious, metal, precious metals markets. Um, this week, the CFTC bought no fewer than four spoofer charges um, and also fined JP Morgan $920 million for activities by their former traders on, guess what, spoofing. Now, those of you that remember the podcast, and I'm sure you memorize every single minute of every single podcast I remember i had matt corkin on um many months ago i think it was the 22nd of february um, of this year and matt was saying that there is actually a cycle to this and when you approach an election cft kind of cftc kind of clears its decks so i don't think there's maybe a spoofing problem as such although i still think it highly amusing that people think they can get away with this on a regulated exchange that where every trade is registered and every every interaction more to the point is 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 registered but um so i don't think there's much on it but if you if your taste is spoofing you've had a you've had a week to dine out on that's for sure um the other thing that caught my eye this week was city being fined don't get me wrong it's four and a half million dollars it's nothing to the bank um for losing something like three million voice recordings now I think these things can happen, obviously. What I did find interesting about the case was um, that they had a system of voice recordings, and in 2014, um, somebody in the division that was looking at voice recordings raised to their, their management, there is, this is a ticking time bomb, and there's a fundamental design flaw in what we do. And the flaw basically was, after two years, when it gets forged, starts deleting on an ad hoc basis. So effectively, there's no keeping it for seven years, and where you're meant to, this started deleting random files. Um, that person left the bank uh, with their number two, I understand, the next year. I think it was probably like you know, nine months later. Um, and you have to wonder, is this part of cost cuts? You know, These are the areas where banks often look at it, and we are currently – slap bang in the middle of probably what we is going to be one of the biggest coals of staff in the banking in the markets business the banking industry has seen for some time now um you know our understanding is city and hsbc are already cutting others are definitely sharpening the axe um but you do wonder sometimes about the false economies and how they decide who goes because the cftc report into this deletion of voice recordings actually says that the quality of stuff, they were the two people that left in 2015 were the only two people who understood the system really. So, what went wrong? You know, how did they, how did City come to the decision to get rid of the only two people that understood the system? If they'd have spoken to people, surely that would have come up. Um, and funny enough, in, in the months and years following, there was cited a bunch of memos from people saying, guess what, you know, we can't cope with this. We haven't got the skills, we haven't got the resources, we haven't got the capabilities. 
this is a bit of an issue. So I think, you know, questions, cities management should be asked questions here by saying, you know, exactly how well did you plan these staff cuts? Or at least if these people left, why did you not look at this business and, and seek to replace like for like somebody who actually understands? Um, all of which really tells me that we're about to hit a boom for third party reg tech. Um, because you know, the way you do this, and it was interesting, there was a CFTC report today, and I can't, there are so many of them. I think it was Morgan Stanley, this one, um, on swaps reporting. They said, you've got to hire an outside consultant to verify what you're doing on remediation. You kind of think reg tech is going to be the next big thing. So, you know, watch this space. We'll see. Another one of the great predictions that never goes right. Um, finally, in terms of the week there was, something that did tweak my interest was um, TPI cap making a bid for LiquidNet. Now, LiquidNet are equities, which, as we all know, is definitely not one of the FICCs in the end of it. But um, they, it does have a fixed income platform. And TPI cap seemed very excited by that platform, that they had the potential, particularly for credit and rates. So that, I think, is probably their main rationale. The fact that it might bring some good buy-side names and the fact that they'll bring equities revenues probably is not a bad thing either. Um, what I thought, my first thought was, though, that you know, if you look at the ICAP side of this, Talek Prebon back in the day really struggled with its electronic franchise. Um, it was neither feast nor famine. It was it just there was nothing that stood out. The, if, if I turn around to people now and said, okay, name me a platform supported by TPI cap. I think a lot of people struggle unless they worked for them. Um, ICAP on the other hand had a lot of, you know, they had iSwap. Um, I think it was the options thing, Volbroker. They were a big part of that with TFS. Um, ICAP generally speaking went the other way, but not all the way, if you know what I mean, if, as we're talking relationships later. Um, ICAP was about the hybrid model. Now, by buying LiquidNet and listening to what TPI Cap is saying about the potential for electronic fixed income and electronic credit, I wonder if this is um, a big signal, and at $700 million is quite an expensive signal, um, that TPI Cap as a, as a combined concern is actually looking at the hybrid model and thinking, maybe there's not a tremendous amount more growth left here and we do need to have more serious diversification into the e-space. Food for thought. And we'll be back with our guest very shortly. Is your company interested in advertising in this spot or in sponsoring an In the Thick of It podcast and having a guest speaker appear with Colin? Email info at profit-loss.com and one of our team will contact you to discuss ideas. A lot is said about TCA and execution quality in markets, and of course they are vitally important um, part of the functioning. But um, I've long been a believer of the fact that data can be used to strengthen relationships and to maybe rationalize businesses. I think we went through a stage where LPs or LP panels just ballooned out and people are now starting to rationalize what they're doing and they're maybe looking to focus more in on their um, activities. And last week, Fair Exchange launched um, a new feature for their Horizon product called Price Stack Analysis, which 
um, tweaked my uh, interest, as these things always do, and I'm delighted to be joined by Guy Hopkins, who's founder and CEO of Fair Exchange, to talk about it. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Colin. Thanks very much for having me. Um, the thing that really struck me about the price stack analysis was probably the stuff you can do behind the headlines, you know, in terms of like, yeah, comparing things. Can you take us through the, the sort of top level view of, of the new service? Yeah, certainly. Um, so this was really born out of, um, there's, been, there's been a steady evolution in this market as we've seen counterparties coming together more and more to talk about execution performance, to try and you know, reach that, that helpful kind of balance point, um, which is you know, why we exist in the first place. It's why, actually why we're called, called Fair Exchange. A lot of those conversations hitherto have really focused on, on markouts, so what's happened to the market after particular trades has happened. And that has, um, that's been a very, very useful and productive kind of common language, if you will, to talk about execution performance and, and is, is a, a very useful tool um, for liquidity providers and their customers to talk about the relative merits of certain types of flow. Um, it only takes you so far, though, because markout analysis is all based on, on a mid-rate. So you'll see you know, how much spread to mid you, you, know, you paid at the time of trade and then what happens to mid afterwards. What it doesn't show, of course, is the underlying complexion of a given customer's liquidity pool. And there is an awful lot going on in there. We hear a lot about things like skew and about you know, spreads and, and, and you know, all these sorts of, sorts of, um, of, of um, subjects that people talk about. They're not really visible through markout analysis. So what we built pricing stack analysis to do was to try and give people visibility into some of these other dynamics and help them understand how their different liquidity providers were kind of assisting them with some of these, these other techniques. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the SKU there because, um, I mean, obviously, you know, there are positive and negative SKUs out there. Yet there are times when you actually want to actually identify, you know, the positive, I guess what would for the customer be a positive SKU. So it's about sort of identifying that and around, and I guess that then brings into account timing, doesn't it? Can, you, can we look at that? Yeah, it does. I mean, ultimately, as a, as a consumer of liquidity, if you're, if you're taking feeds from multiple liquidity providers, essentially what you want is, <coughs> excuse me, is diversity of liquidity and that means you don't want people all to be skewed the same direction yeah um because that's not really going to help you You want people who've got the ability to kind of show this kind of heterogeneous liquidity mix and that could be you know, firms with a very diverse background for franchises or risk appetites um and and you're right a skew only really helps you when it's actually on the side of the market that you want to trade on if it's on the same side of the market as you are then it, it, it's effectively useless yeah. I mean, if everyone's skewed in the same direction, I would suggest that maybe there's some signaling risk you want to look into. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> so, so effectively then what we're looking at is um, trying to match. It, it, to me, it sounds like the next level of sort of data analytics in terms of we're trying to match typical flow from the client to typical skews from the LP. Yes, essentially a lot of, and certainly a lot of the conversations I've been in, in in the last few years, when people have, have been providing feedback to their liquidity providers, you know, often it will be a kind of a, at, a, at a headline spread level. Like your average spread over X period yeah. of time is is this. And that's great, of course, but it's, it's, it only goes so far because it's, it's always just a kind of a, an average price. What I guess what people really want to get to the, the bottom of, both on the customer side, but also importantly on the liquidity provider side, is when we're actually trading, how competitive is your pricing? How relevant is it to our actual trading activity? 
Um, and, and that's really what we're seeking to understand. Because, of course, if we can get a better a feel for that, then it, it helps us understand where liquidity providers are being relevant, where maybe they can, maybe they can do more to win more business, which would benefit us as a taker, but of course also benefits the liquidity providers as well, because we can give them more targeted feedback about where they might be able to adjust their pricing and maybe even how much flow they might, additional flow they might win if they made certain changes, rather than this kind of very broad brush Oh, you're just you know point one wider all the time. Maybe tighten up by point one, and you'll win loads more volume, which is uh, you know a, a quite abstract kind of concept and not particularly exact science. That's the uh, that's the sales desk approach to everything, I think, isn't it? Tighten up, and we'll win a load more flow. It doesn't matter whether you'll make any Nicely. money out of it. But exactly right. We'll definitely win more flow. Yeah, it's, we call it the on the trading desk. We just call it the sales credit chatter. Um, <laughs> so, I mean. This, I like the idea of this because I mean something that you've mentioned to me before when we've discussed you know, sundry topics was evidence in the relationship. Now I thought this was interesting in, in many ways because, um, particularly during the peak COVID in March and April, liquidity was strained, and I'm sure your analysis shows that as well. But um, what consumers were telling me was that yeah you know, their LPs were very mixed in terms of their performance and. I guess it's human nature. You know, some LPs effectively went missing, some stayed in. Come April, May, everyone's going, oh, no, no, we stayed in. It's one of the great things you hear in, in, in the world nowadays. We get a flash event and everybody's quick to tell you how they stayed in. Can this actually tell me if I was a customer who actually did stay in in March and April? Yes, and that's actually been one of the fascinating things through this is, is, is the ability to understand you know, how liquidity has changed through these kind of major market dislocations. Um, a lot of people use things like volume as, as, as a proxy for liquidity. And, and of course, what we really want to know is, you know when, as I said before, when, when, when we're trading, what does that actually mean for our costs? Um, and, and yeah, it has been, it was, it's very interesting to see things like the speed with which liquidity providers adjust their pricing, how much buy, how quickly they came back in. Did they come in to where they were before? Um, you know, are there any structural changes in, in liquidity provision pre and post? And you know, I think this points to one of the things that we find very interesting about this, this topic in general is that we're trying to actually put numbers and, 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 and hard data around things which people, I think, feel very intuitively in, in, yeah. in their minds, but, but don't necessarily have the ability to actually evidence that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, many of the liquidity providers out there, you know, obviously they say, you know, we are, you know, you know, we were, did our level best to be as competitive as we possibly could during the, um, the COVID crisis. And we have come back in. They want also to be able to demonstrate that to, to their customers. So it is about evidencing things on both sides. Again, like you said before about, you know, helping that on the, the relationship side, you know, finding that common ground for that discussion. Well, I mean, if I'm a good LP to certain clients, then, to me, this is fantastic because I can say, like, here's the analysis from an independent firm, as opposed to the guy down the road who's telling you that they stayed in all the time, but you know they, they haven't got any data to, to back that up. So I'm all for that. Yeah. Because I think you know there's there's a lot there is a lot of funny games played when markets move, but I guess the thing is this would also show though that this is not necessarily just a who's the best LP analysis, is it? This is who was the best LP for an individual client during these yes. peak COVID periods. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the really interesting things that this starts to show up is it, is it sometimes raises um, 
some slightly counterintuitive conclusions about what might be be an ideal liquidity mix for a certain you know part of, part of your business. Yeah. Um, I think you naturally think, oh, if I'm going to be trading, you know, on really aggressive spreads, I need the you know the top five euro money banks or or, or something like that, yeah. liquidity providers. And, and often that's not necessarily the case. Um, yet it, it's all about, as I said before, about kind of diversity of liquidity approach. But it, it being able to find where those opportunities are and to nurture those conversations with specific liquidity providers to help you get that to get that good service. Just to pick up on a, a point you just made a, a minute ago, you know, a lot of this 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 part of the sales pitch that the liquidity provider had has, has been around, you know, uh, effectively a narrative, a story. But you know, ultimately, it's very helpful to have to have numbers to hang things off. A classic example is, you know, as I'm sure you know people talk about internalization rates. And, what is your internalization rate? And people come out with these numbers and that information isn't, firstly, it's not verifiable. It's not actually very useful to anyone. It doesn't really tell anyone anything. This is a much more direct yeah. targeted approach that allows people to have a, 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 um, a conversation that's actually much, much closer to the actual trading business. And, and, and people can really start to get a sense of what actually means economically for them when they change things. And I guess that has implications when you start talking in terms of, your, you know, the liquidity pool you're building or the panel, as we used to call it back in the day, of liquidity yep. providers. Because, yeah, we've seen, you know, pretty high profile um, approach from City to trim the number of channels they price to. And, you know, yep. other banks are definitely doing the same thing. You know, I've also been speaking to LPs that are looking at their, so liquidity consumers who are looking at their LPs and saying, you know, it's great. Um, we've got 14 LPs on our panel because they're all involved in some shape or form of their wider business. But actually what I want to do is really narrow that down by currency pair. Don't get me wrong. They're not going to just chop people off. Um, so there is definitely this move out there to, as I mentioned in my intro, to kind of condense liquidity providers, yep. especially in an era of so much liquidity recycling. So yep. this strikes me as something that the analysis can show in terms of, you know, LP4 is not going brilliantly, but LP8, who's not currently on your panel, is. is, is that Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that's very much what, what the kind of thing we're trying to, to, to achieve with this, to help people understand, you know, what might be a, an optimal panel for me to have for a, a given, as you say, given set, given set of currency pairs. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Obviously, there's the, the physical costs associated with the supporting lots of connections. Obviously, there's credit you know, the costs involved in onboarding, credit relationships, all that sort of stuff. But there's also the, um, the fact that um, if you concentrate your flow across a smaller set of liquidity providers, then obviously you're not diluting, diluting your flow quite as much and, and each LP gets more and therefore you tend to get more attention at those particular shops. If you have a very broad panel, then you dilute your flow a bit, a bit, a bit too much. Yeah. Um, so I think there is, a, there is a big argument for rationalizing your liquidity panel. Um, and there's some obviously some great stuff out there put out by um, you know, people in the sales side papers about about this. What's the optimal number? There is one big risk for this though, and that's you you risk falling into an echo chamber. And if you if you just say right, we're only going to have these six, and everyone else is going to get switched off, then you know because you know because FX is uh, such a um, a low margin business, it doesn't take you know substantial changes from anyone to actually become go from being a not particularly relevant liquidity provider to being very very relevant indeed. And if you cut yourself out from those other liquidity providers, you miss those opportunities to find out if one of your existing liquidity providers has now maybe gone a bit stale and you might want to swap someone in else in, instead. So that rotation piece is, is critically important to keep 
uh, an eye on everything that's happening across the, the various relationships you've got and then and then you know using kind of data-driven decision making to to you know for the next month or quarter whatever it might be to say okay this is what we're going to do and then to be able to explain that decision making process both internally but also importantly to those liquidity providers so you basically you, you mentioned there you know the the cost of swapping lps in and out and they are considerable at times you know particularly for smaller players or regional players um can this be done on a what-if environment? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things that we're doing with this is is, is attempting to, to evidence actually, you know, what are the the economic impacts of me potentially changing my liquidity provider panel? What might that mean for my costs? What might that mean for the volume that they and the rest of my LPs might see? Is it actually going to make a material difference to our business? Um, you know, there's so many people out there selling liquidity and, and you know, so many sales pitches being done. Um, you know, people really need to know that it's actually economically sensible for them to go through that onboarding process, obviously cognizant of the fact that they will then ultimately end up diluting the flow to their existing panel or indeed might be switching other LPs off. So it's a real case of, you know, try, you know, try before you buy, so to speak. The flip side of that, of course, is that with this sort of, 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 of discussion you know framework if you will i think it it, it provides some fairly, fairly major opportunities for the sell side as well because if again to support that sales pitch to, to be able to demonstrate to a customer don't just take our word for it that we have a great corporate franchise therefore we're very good in our home currency we, we can actually demonstrate to you and evidence that based on your business the value that we can bring that's what we we find very very interesting again strengthening that conversation between takers and makers to get help them come to that kind of that balance point of, of value on both sides yeah i mean your, your point about um sort of you know swapping and out is an interesting one to me because i think um yeah you mentioned the top five year of money bank which i believe is a magazine looks at foreign exchange once a year i don't know i can't i've heard of them vaguely. not all banks <laughs> exactly yeah. sorry I sorry year of money i couldn't resist Jeremy. it but yeah um yeah but <laughs> But it's basically, I mean, I look at that and think to myself, well, if you'd have looked at two of those perennial top five banks two years ago, um, they had admitted themselves to their clients that they had a problem with um, market impact. So I think the fact that you can actually look beyond and show a little bit of imagination, this kind of empowers, you know, A, the, the strong regional player, but it also empowers those that actually have invested in their technology. Which, which those two banks have done, I should point out. While we're on LPs, so something that's become a big thing um, in recent years, and I guess it's really, really started, I think the first ones to really look at it were XTX, but I'm, you know, the other LPs are looking at it now as well. And that's um, skew leakage or alpha leakage, you know, price alpha leakage. They try and watermark their liquidity, but obviously this is a, you know, we're talking unexact sciences um, at the best of times, but this is very inexact. Can this help the LPs in any way by look, helping them look across a broader peer analysis? Yeah, I mean, skew leakage is something we are starting to to look at. It is it, it's embryonic; it's early days for us. I think the areas that it's probably the 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 most useful um, in in terms of from, from purely from a skew perspective is that because of this risk of you know showing your SKUs out to an unknown counterparty you don't necessarily know where the liquidity is going to end up and you don't know if that that SKU is going to get leaked back into the lit markets and, and, and damage your position 
as a result, people are very cautious and, and rightly so about who they show their SKUs to. Um, and so there's a real case of kind of cautious optimism about, you know, starting on quite on, on, rather gingerly, if you will, and, 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 and steadily as the kind of relationship builds, maybe showing slightly more, um, more aggressive SKUs when you're certain that they're not going to get leaked out to the market. What we're trying to do with this is, is hopefully try and short circuit that process a little bit because ultimately, like I come back to the previous point I was making, for liquidity providers to be able to demonstrate to their customers that you know people should trade with them, um, and that might be the really big players we just talked about, but it also, yeah. of course, could be people further along the chain, people who may aggregate um, feeds from the big liquidity providers, and they also benefit heavily from the SKUs they're shown by their LPs and want to be very protective of those. This is more about helping them to demonstrate and evidence the liquidity, their liquidity quality without running the risk of switching it on you know, something goes wrong and then they lose their SKUs from their, their liquidity providers. So, you know, because we're a completely neutral independent party, because effectively we are hermetically still, we're not a trading platform, we never will be a trading platform, you know, it allows people to show this, this kind of SKU-based data in a way that they can be confident isn't going to get leaked back out into the market and allow them to put their kind of best foot forward. It's very interesting area this i think it's um because you know as i've mentioned earlier we've seen people start to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to look at their own business but obviously that's a kind of a, a single unilateral aspect isn't it to get it on a on a peer or multilateral layer i think it's very very interesting um yeah yeah it is it's um sorry to interrupt though but it's, it is a uh, ultimately uh, what's become very clear in the conversations we've been having with 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 market participants over the past kind of year or two in particular is that obviously it is almost 100 percent electronic at least in the spot market yeah. and yet the management of these businesses is still very very manual it's still people going through um you know platforms like ours or, or pdf reports and then making yeah. changes and then setting calendar reminders to go and check things in a couple of weeks and of course it is a multi-dimensional problem it's very difficult for people to get you know their arms around so you know this is ripe for this kind of you know machine learning ai driven decision making um a caution though that i don't think that we would never see well i hope we don't see a complete replacement of of, of people within the process i think this is much more about augmenting human decision making so i think you know, people have a very big part to play in this process uh, but yes i think there will be some lots of opportunities particularly on the optimization side um, for these some of these techniques to, to, to uncover some really useful and interesting information yeah i mean i mean the new there are always nuances around every relationship um that maybe cannot be put into data format so i i, I would agree with you i think you know but it, it's interesting you know to me it gives it gives the people going into the room to have a conversation, um, an unequivocal analysis of where their relationship stands. So you no longer you take the emotion out of it, which I think is going to be vitally important going forward. And you know, as people do start to wonder what they're doing in their foreign exchange business, I think they'll be using analysis like this a lot more. So um, yeah, I think that's um, definitely one for the future, one for the now probably, but certainly become more important in the future. Um, Guy, thank you very much for your time today. Really interesting conversation. You, I think I think this goes a long way, a lot further as well, as I keep on saying. So um, thank you for coming on. Um, and to listeners, thank you very much for listening again this week. We'll be back next week, probably, um, with another guest. We've got so many conferences going on. I can't remember which weeks I'm on and off, but it, we'll, we'll play a bit of um, tag with the 
podcast for the next couple of weeks. But uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for listening and uh, we'll be back. <laughs>